Narcissistic personality disorder is a person who has an inflated sense of their importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and a lack of empathy for others. Behind the outward appearance of a person with narcissistic personality disorder sits fragile self-esteem that is vulnerable to the slightest criticism. NPD causes problems in many aspects of life, relationships, work, school, or financial affairs. Those with NPD will generally be unhappy people and become disappointed when they are not given the special favors or admiration to which they feel entitled to. Along with being impatient, they can become very angry when they do not receive the treatment they want. They can react with rage or contempt or try to belittle the other person or make themselves appear superior. Have difficulty regulating emotions and behavior makes for a terrifying outburst from a person with NPD. Lacking the capability of handling stress and adapting to change will magnify the outburst. When they have what they feel like a failure in life, they sink into depression and become moody. Narcissistic people tend to use verbal and psychological abuse, which can progress into physical violence against those closest to them. Many narcissists are paranoid and vindictive. John Battaglia was all of that and more, and you can argue he was groomed to become a narcissist based on the environment in which he was raised as a child. Coupled with the severe genetic depression passed down from his mother, the future John lacked the skills and know-how to cope with moments in life that are embarrassing or makes him feel inferior. Michelle didn't treat her husband as a person inferior to her. She treated John like a husband, like a lover, like a life partner. John wanted what he wanted when he wanted it, without question. Sometimes the very thing that he wanted is what made the base of his narcissistic disorder. John wanted life handed to him, and when it wasn't delivered on the silver platter, then the worst in John came to light. And it's the worst that he held on to the longest and would prove to be the detrimental factor to every personal relationship he has. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we continue on with John Battaglia and his relationship with Michelle. Michelle stood her ground and decided she and her children needed away from John before something terrible happened and he couldn't take back what his anger made him do. This was an embarrassment for John. He couldn't keep his wife happy. His family was falling apart during a time when divorce was still on the fence about being taboo in life. John's father couldn't be proud of a son who had no control over his wife. How could he be the best father to his daughter in everyone's eyes if this bitch of a wife was taking her away? Surviving is the only way Michelle knew how to fight back against her abusive soon-to-be ex-husband. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of emotional abuse, domestic abuse, and murder. 
Listener's discretion is strongly advised. If any of this may be too much for you, please, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, all of my true crime nerds. If any of you have been following me on social media, you know that last week we hit a huge milestone with the show. TTCL YouTube soared past the 1,000 mark in subscribers, and it was a very humbling moment. I want to thank you all for believing in me and the show so much. I would not be here still telling you true crime stories that you want to hear if it wasn't for you. If you haven't yet, please head over to the YouTube and hit subscribe for me and then turn the bell on so you never miss an upload. If you listen through the podcast apps on the YouTube, I simply just insert some photos to go along with what I'm talking about. That that's it's the same story. It doesn't change. It just has some visual aids for you. So if you'd like to hear that, head over to YouTube and hit up the True Crime Librarian. Hit subscribe and hit the notification bell so you never miss an upload. If you're on your favorite podcast app tuning in, make sure you are following the show so that you will get the notification come quitting time on Monday when the new episodes release. The best way to fight those Monday blues is with the true crime librarian on the drive home. Tonight, we spread some of the true crime nerd love to all of those following the show and tuning in weekly to hear the cases I can't get out of my head. Thank you all for being here. Remember to review, recommend, or donate to the show so that TTCO can keep filling your ear holes. Now off to what you all came here for, the true crime. So last week I had started with John and his upbringing and his relationship with Michelle. And by the end of the episode, Michelle had filed for divorce and her soon-to-be ex-husband had been arrested by the police due to a another protection order violation in his latest. It was the tantrum on the freeway where he threw a rock out of her vehicle. Luckily, she was able to swerve and miss it, and it did not hit any innocent bystander. This time, they were holding him, and the only way out was for him to pay 10000 in cash. There was no surety bond for him to be filing. There was no bondman to come and save him 
with him just putting down 10%. No, 10,000 cold hard cash in full before he was released. John had been sitting in county for three days and finally he had a shot to make his case to the judge. The hearing for John's requested bail reduction was here, and even though his father was disappointed in his son, he was still there to support his son at the hearing. And John sat at the defense table praying that his father brought his checkbook. When Michelle got up and described to the judge what had happened with John on the freeway, John Jr. looked back at John Sr., lifted his arm, flexed his bicep, And it was like a kid turning to his parent, hoping to have praise for the latest accomplishment in life. It was grossly displaying his narcissistic personality. Like, look at me, dad. I did good. Did you did you hear what she said? I did that to gain control. Well, with Michelle's story, coupled with numerous violations of her protective order, Judge Ince stuck to the $10,000 cash bond originally placed on John. John was led away back to his cell and his father, well, he didn't break out the checkbook. Come Monday morning following John's Friday bond hearing, he was desperate and he needed out of jail. He wasn't like his cellmates. He was not cut out to be incarcerated. So John called Michelle up and he was now going to have to grovel to the very person that had put him in jail because the only hopes in him getting out without making bond was to have the charges dropped so he calls michelle and he's like hey listen i'll do whatever you want i've been here for eight days i'm going nuts i'll drop everything that i've asked for in the divorce you can have christy for the lion's share of the time just listen to me michelle I'm stuck here. I need to get out of here. I need to get a job. I need to come up with money. Please, can you help me out? And so after the phone call, Michelle, she, she, you know, she never, she didn't hang up on him. She let him present his case. And, you know, a lot of us are going, (laughs) I hung up on him the moment I realized that's him calling me. But that's where Michelle is stronger. She was able to hold on to the maturity, right? And so she let him say his piece. And then she hung up the phone and she honestly did sit back and think, you know, maybe with the time he's been in there, maybe he's learned a lesson, right? You know, so she's still chewing over the conversation. John calls back and he has even bigger news than before. His father did come through with the bail money and he was out. Now he wanted to know if he could come by to discuss the details of the charges that she had filed. Michelle didn't want to cave to John's begging, but her father-in-law gave in and now the very man to torment her at every turn was out and he wanted to come over. So when John shows up that night, he's sickly looking. He's got this ashy complexion, very, very white skin. He looks like a timid dog. Like You've seen the dogs who have come from an abusive home. They're very timid. Any, any motion in their direction causes them to cower. 
And this is what John looked like. He had just come from eight days inside of county jail. Well, you, you know, county jail is nothing in comparison to what he would later serve in life. But for him in this moment, that's as bad as it's ever been. So it's taken a toll on him and it's, and it, it put him, it put him in check with life. He's not completely untouchable. You know, he is capable of actually serving time for some of the shit he's pulling. And that's a reality that's hitting him. And when you're a narcissist like himself, you don't want reality smacking you in the face like this. What you want is, is for reality to be on your side, to give you the things you want. When you are handed a cup of humble pie, you don't like that. Not when you're a narcissist. So he is really, it like drained John to be in there. He did want the charges dropped. And like I said, Michelle had already kind of started thinking, you know, John's been in there for eight days. Was that long enough for him to learn his lesson? And she said, and she told John, you know, let me think about it. Well, the next day, Michelle contacts her lawyer and she talks to him about the charges against John. And whether dropping them would become, would be the right decision. Well, she learned that if John was found guilty, he would probably be given time served, maybe a slap on the wrist. There was no point in going through the litigation if John was not going to have to pay any more time. When Michelle put it up to push come shove, what was the point if he was just going to get time served? There's no point in continuing on. I can get with her in this. And since she is a lawyer and she was number one when she graduated from law school, I would say she has a pretty good grasp on the law and on what these outcomes really mean. And for her to go ahead and sign the affidavit of non-prosecution to dismiss the charges against John she really understood that the sentence, that the outcome was not going to be anywhere close to what she had hoped it had been. She hoped in that moment that she signed her name across the bottom of that form, she wasn't making a horrendous mistake. Hopefully, John had finally learned his lesson. What she didn't see was the sugar-coated lie that John had eight days to dream up. He had eight days to figure out ways to get her to drop those charges. And then she needed to learn a lesson, but John was only going to hand deliver that lesson when the time was right. Because of this latest violation, John was attending counseling on a regular basis along with Michelle. She's still going to see her counselor for her to find herself and get herself back to who she was before John came into her life. John seemed to be doing well, and his very counselor told Michelle. Now, remember, I said that as John was kind of going through some of these counseling phases, Michelle would often speak to who he was having these sessions with. And this counselor decides to tell Michelle Quote, John is no danger to you, end quote. This is their medical professional opinion. John's not going to 
outburst at you again. You are not going to be his intended target for these untimely, uncontrollable fits of rage. You're you're good. Now, whether Michelle believed the load of bullshit that was or not, that's a different story. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I don't believe it. And I, the very first time I read this book... It, let me go a little sidetrack here. The first time I read this book was way back when, mm, 2003-ish, maybe, 2004. So it was just a few years after the crime had been committed and even let it like maybe a year, year and a half from the time he was convicted um, of killing Mary Faith and Liberty. So it was still pretty fresh. And the first time I read this book, I went and I went, bullshit. He's no danger. Have you heard what he has done to her? Once somebody like John has a target on someone's back, they don't let up until that target is eliminated, right? Or the target shifts. Well, at the, at the time, I, I was like, how, who else is dumb enough to marry this stupid son of a bitch? But <laughs> I at, at the time, I knew it was complete bullcrap. Now that I've gone back and read John's case and reread the book, No Daddy Don't, I mean, I call bullshit anyways, but because I know the story and I know it very well. I've known it for a long time. And it's one that because of its... Um, subject matter. It's very, you need to be very careful in the way that you approach a story that has significant amount of spousal abuse because so many people are living it. So many people have survived it and so many people are fighting. And you don't know who those people are because most people don't put on the I'm an abused spouse mask when they go out into public. Generally, it's a everything's great. My family's doing well. I couldn't be better. We are blessed kind of thing, right? So what made me decide I could approach this case where I'm at in, in, in the show? I'm not exactly tactful. And a lot of you have pointed out my grammar is shitty. So let's go ahead and, you know, check those two off. But when it came to presenting this case, I felt like there's somebody out there that needs to hear that it's possible to make it past what they think are their darkest days. And Michelle and Mary Jean are both, whether they want to believe it or not, they're both poster childs for fighting their abuser okay they both came out on the other end they both came out damaged hurt and with scars but they both woke up the next day even if it was hard and they continue to wake up each day and live a different life than what it was when John Battaglia was in their life so I figure even if it's just one of you out there that needs to hear this case and needs to know that it's okay. There's people there that will help you fight. There are people there that will help keep you safe. 
and it's possible to walk away from the person who is abusing you, that's all I needed. I mean, that's angle right there. If it helps one of you, then I've done my job. So let me get back to the story now that we're sidetracked. Sorry about that. So Michelle, you know, is hearing John's no, no danger to you. Well, okay. Tell that to, you know, she's been hit how many times? She's been completely terrorized just because he can how many times? Well, the following spring, Michelle's neighbors were doing some yard work and he noticed that there's two wires coming out of the attic of Michelle's home leading into this like congregation of bushes. Okay. So he goes over to Michelle and he, and he lets her know, you know, I see two wires coming out of your attic. It doesn't look like this looks out of place. So they go up there and the neighbor traces the wires back from Michelle's home into that congregation of bushes. And he finds that they are connected to a recorder. So Michelle contacts John. Who else could it be who's recording her conversations, right? Well, John's not stupid. He's been recording her conversations for quite some time over the phone. And he's using that information to terrorize her even more. So when Michelle calls John and talks to him about it and about what she and her neighbor had found, he says, he, he thinks the whole situation is funny. And he says, yeah, you know, the, that's me. I get up, I set an alarm for 2 a.m. I get up, I go down there, I take the tape out, put a new tape in, come home, and I listen to your conversation. And then I use that information to keep at you. John knew her day-to-day -day life almost more than she knew it herself. He boasted that he learned it all during his time in the Marines. How to wiretap, how to, how to get the information you need on the enemy, right? Most military people, they learn that during their time. That's, that's kind of what they're supposed to do. So, you know... I pulled one over on my smug wife. That's how John feels. He's laughing about the whole situation. Michelle doesn't find it funny. Now, things were starting to make sense with Michelle, though, because it wasn't long ago that Christy had fallen and bumped her head. And she had had a conversation about it. And John had heard through the recording. And he calls her the very next day after the incident happens. And he's screaming and yelling at Michelle, calling her an unfit mother. Well, funnily enough, Michelle had gone to her lawyer prior to that incident and asked if her house was bugged, how would she know? So her and her lawyer set her up with somebody who went to her home and they checked for bugs. Admittedly, this person says they never checked the attic, which is why it took so long before John's little recording device was ever discovered. So she had this gut feeling that John had taught tapped her wires, had put a bug into her home because how was he able to berate her over things she wasn't telling him, right? So now we have it figured out. Well, John had committed a little federal offense with this wiretapping, one that 
had the possibility of prison time had he been found guilty. But Michelle held back. Now, why are you, why? She was days, days away from him signing the final divorce decree. And when you're a person who is legally attached to your abuser, the moment you have paperwork that severs that tie, it's the only thing you can see. So had, you know, John committed a federal offense of wiretapping, and I think when I looked it up, the, the maximum sentence was five years in, you know, a federal penitentiary. She could have taken that and probably had John locked away. But had she done so, he would have put off divorcing her even longer. So to have that piece of paper officially severing their lives, that was her end goal, right? Through the spring of 1987, John lost his attorney due to non-payment. But John will, or John did, adamantly claim he fired him due to his incapability to represent John in the best way possible. Layman terms, John wanted to get away with murder and it was up to his lawyer to find a better way so he could do so. Judge Ince did rule in favor for the attorney in releasing him from his duties as a defense lawyer to John David Battaglia. Now, why did a judge have to rule on that? When you're going through things like this and you hire someone to defend you and then you've had several criminal charges, because everybody has a right to an attorney, we have to go in front of a judge and the attorney, the attorney needs to present evidence that says, I am not a good fit to represent this person. I cannot do in my job duties the best in order to get them the best representation, okay? So had it just simply been the divorce, I don't, I don't think a judge would have had to, you know, declare the, the attorney free of any responsibility. But because there were criminal charges, he had to have a judge say that it was not in John's best interest or the best interest of his attorney to continue to represent John. So out goes John's attorney. He's up for grabs. And when you're a person who is continually breaking the law, it's really hard, FYI, when you don't have your attorney fighting for you. When there's not somebody on the legal side filing all the paperwork that needs to be filed that's fighting for your bond reductions, for whatever the case may be, it's really hard for you to get arrested and then get out like you didn't even do a damn thing. Well, John, he expected it. I'm going to be arrested. I'll go down, give me my fingerprints, pay you $100 on my $1,000 bond. We'll be good. Golden, right? Well, it's hard to do when you don't have an attorney doing all that fighting for you. On July 10th of 1987, Michelle and John signed the final divorce decree. She was free of being John Battaglia's wife, and it was time to return to who she was before John came into her life. 
Even though John was getting Christy on a regular visit, he no longer had a say in how Michelle was going to live her life. Or so she thought. The very first visit following the signing of the divorce, John showed up late, hateful, and possibly under the influence of something. Because he says something along the lines of, hey bitch, give me my kid. Well, Michelle was not going to let him take their daughter, not in this state. She, you know, she has a head on her shoulders. And when he shows up acting like that, it's really hard to be like, yeah, you can take our kids. See you later. Bye. You know, no. So John gets in Michelle's face and he's yelling and he's calling her everything under the sun. But John wasn't taking Christy in this condition. And Michelle decided to go in the home, in her home that she wants shared with John, and close the door. However, he was able to wedge his foot or his hand or something in there that prevented her from closing the door. And John is standing there screaming in her face. Well, Michelle finds it in her to push John out of the doorway and shut the door and lock it. So he goes back to his apartment and he decides, I'm going to call the police. Why are we calling the police? John files assault and battery charges against Michelle. Now, nothing will truly ever come of those charges. It's just the formality of the police coming out and entertaining the idea that he may have a leg up on her. But it comes into play in their story here in just a few minutes. Following the incident of her shoving John and unbeknowingly had the cops called because she committed assault, Michelle and her children were involved in an accident after a pop-up thunderstorm caused her to lose control of her vehicle on the interstate and crash into the concrete median. This meant that while her car was being repaired, she had to ride the bus, meaning she left her home a little bit earlier than normal to get to work on time. In August, Michelle walked out of her house and bumped right into John. As she was coming down from the porch, she began screaming at him to leave. John just kept coming at her, and as she tried to get him to leave, John just got angry and angrier, and he ended up curling his fingers into a fist, and they exploded, and when they did, he connected with Michelle, causing her to fall down five steps. So the house had steps from the porch and then it had a a distance of sidewalk and then it had five more steps before it was at ground level with the road and the sidewalk and everything else. She fell down that second flight of steps and her briefcase went flying. All the legal, legal paperwork she had inside just everywhere across the front yard. The housekeeper, um, that we had talked about last week, the the heavyset woman of color, she opened the door and Michelle began screaming at her to call the police. Because this time, John was going to jail and she was going to let him right there. There was no amount of begging that would cause her to ease up. Well, the very next day after this incident, John knew now was the time to deliver the lesson Michelle was in desperate need of learning. So he hops on his bike. He knows the bus route. He knows when Michelle will step off in order to go home for the night. And he was going to be right there to teach her her lesson 
There was a neighbor across the way from the bus stop that had seen Michelle exit the bus and begin to make the small walk back to her house. When a man on a bicycle passed by, the next thing she knows, she looks up, she hears them screaming, and the man from the bicycle is now beating Michelle right there for everyone to see. Michelle took blow after blow. Her neighbor couldn't fathom what the woman from the bus had done to cause such an outburst from the man on the bike. She did not realize that that John was Michelle's ex-husband and that this was a severe pattern with them. The man punched she punched Michelle, pulled at her hair, at her clothing. At one point, he rips from her ear a diamond stud earring. This is a man who only feels empowered when he is putting his hands on a woman. Michelle had done nothing to provoke the rage coming from John Battaglia except for just divorce him and protect herself and her children from him. Michelle's eyes both were swelling and changing into some gruesome black and blue bruises. Michelle continued to try and defend herself to the best that she could, but nothing was protecting her from the ravage beating. No matter how many times the woman who watched the beating go down from her porch screamed at the man to stop, it made no difference. Fist after fist connected with the woman from the bus. The final blow connected with her jaw, knocking her out. The man from the bike then simply picked up his bicycle and rode off into the distance. The neighbor began screaming at another neighbor that she had talked to. She told them to call 911. A passerby on a motorcycle stopped when he saw the condition of Michelle and her neighbor instructed that person into her home. A stranger told them where to go to get a rag and ice and to bring it out so they could help the woman on the street who is unconscious. When Michelle came to, there's the neighbor, and she's holding on to Michelle, and she's trying to soothe her by saying, he's never going to touch you again. Help is on the way. We've got you. Michelle, through her injuries, was able to make sure that the, wom the woman had seen what John had done to her. And when she was satisfied that the woman had seen enough, she knew they were going to lock John up and hopefully throw the key away. Michelle was carted away in an ambulance and the neighbor gave the police every single detail she could remember about what she had just witnessed between Michelle and John Battaglia. In the emergency room, Michelle asked for them to call her babysitter and her parents. She would not allow them to wipe away the blood until she was photographed. However, due to the amount of bleeding they had to wipe some of this away in order to find its source and get it to stop. Within minutes, Michelle had to be rolled into surgery. Her eyes were both black and blue, and she told the, the doctors that when he hit her, it felt like her eyeball had hit the back of her skull. So they were concerned about her vision. 
Her eyes are almost completely swollen at this point. Had she opened them to the widest that she could, you could not see what color her eyes were. Her nose laid flat against her cheek. It was more than broken. It was severely dislocated. And the blow to her jaw had dislocated it. And she needed to have her jaw wired shut for about a month. Once she was out of surgery, a woman from a battered woman shelter came in to help take photographs of Michelle and the injuries. Due to the anesthetic from surgery, Michelle was dozing in and out of consciousness. And when the police arrived to take her statement, she was surprised that the officer there to take her statement on what had happened recognized her as being the woman from John's complaint of assault and he actually referred to Michelle as the woman who beat her husband. What? You're looking at a woman whose eyes are so swollen. You're, her nose is bandaged. It's There's gruesome, gruesome bruising on her face. And her jaw is wired shut to where you're having a hard time understanding what she has to say. And you have the balls to call her the abuser? In my mind, I need your badge. You're done. But what am I? Pisses me off each time I read that statement. When you look at the statistics of domestic violence, many don't expect to see this one in particular. Three quarters of murders or serious violence committed against the victim in a domestic assault case comes after the victim walks away from the abuser. This is why it is so important to surround yourself with as many people as possible until you can completely remove that person from your life. When you are sitting here and we're talking about another woman struggling with domestic violence and you ask why she didn't have the courage to leave you're asking the wrong question leaving doesn't stop the abuser it only fuels their rage remember that you don't have to do this alone you are very capable of doing it alone but you don't have to there are people out there that will come and they will set with you every moment of every day just to make sure that you are okay and another attack doesn't happen. We push for you to call a hotline. We push for you to call family. If you need to, shoot me a message. I will do what I can do in order to make sure you are safe. Don't ever feel like there's never a person there for you because there is. There are so many people there and you don't know their name and they don't know you, yours. But they know they will do whatever it takes to make sure you are breathing at the end of the day. So when you're asking that question, why don't we change it to what need, why are there no stricter domestic violence laws. Why does it take a serious attack like that of Michelle's or murder before they take the constant repeated incidents of abuse, 
seriously. We need to look at that. We need to protect those who can't stand up to their abusers. They live this life day in and day out because they know at the end of the day, it could be worse. If they walked away, things could get worse. So don't ever ask why they're still there. You can ask, how can I help? Or you can ask, why don't we have stricter domestic violence laws? Those are important questions. But never question why a woman is still standing there taking the abuse. Because in her mind, she knows what they're capable of. And you don't want to see that. Most women don't have, most victims, not just women, but most victims don't have the support system they feel like they need to have in order to walk away. But just know that support system is out there. And like I said, if you don't feel like you have anybody, message me. And I'll move heaven and earth to figure it out. Now, John was arrested the following Sunday at his garage apartment after beating the crap out of Michelle. He spent one night in jail. He paid 10% on a surety bond. And he walked out Monday morning. This never-ending cycle could have been the death of Michelle had she not been as strong as she was. And guess what? Determination is the key to surviving. So nights, her parents flew in after they heard and Michelle spent a couple days in the hospital after the beating. But as soon as her parents had to return to Louisiana, Michelle got in contact with friends, with law school buddies, whoever she could to come and stay the night with her. And that way, she was never left alone with just her and her children. There was always somebody there to witness something if John decided to show his ass to the whole world. Now, he has a felony assault charge pending against him. And until he went to trial, he was still walking around like a free man and could stalk and terrorize his wife or his ex-wife till his heart's content. There was nothing stopping him. Well, at one point after the bruises started to fade and the scars were getting lighter, Michelle had to go to the grocery store and she took her son and Christy with her. Well, Christy was young enough that she was sitting in the buggy, in the seat of the buggy, but her son was old enough that he was walking. She loses sight of him for half a second, and when she does find him, he's standing there with John Battaglia. And John tells the boy when Michelle walks up, he says, you see your mother there? You see her face? Remember, that could happen to you. And it was in that moment that Michelle decided she needed to take protection into her own hands. The police weren't doing shit. All she had was a piece of paper that said he wasn't supposed to be there, but there's nobody enforcing it. So she went out and bought herself a gun. So the other thing that Texas is known for is our gun-toting citizens. We take personal security down here to heart. So obtaining a gun to protect yourself and your family is rather easy. If you find yourself at a sporting goods store, 
walk over, fill out the necessary paperwork, and bam, in a few days, you can have a gun as long as you pass all the checks. And now I don't even think it's a few days. I think it's just hours. So you become this gun owner, right? Well, when it comes to protecting yourself and, and your children and your family, owning a gun isn't only step one. Learning how to use that gun and use it correctly, that is the whole backside that most people don't get. You need to go and you need to buy your ammunition. You need to walk into a gun range and I guarantee you, you could throw a dart and you'd hit somebody who is capable of showing you how to aim and fire and do so in a manner that is safe for you and safe for those around you, except for the person you are aiming at. So if you want to own a gun, my advice, be a responsible owner. And that way you can defend you and yours to the best of your capability. Well, Michelle does just that. She goes out, she buys a gun, she gets cleared, and then she goes down to the shooting range and she takes quite a few lessons from person in the shooting range and she learns exactly how to do everything I just said as safely as possible. She's got two young kids in the home. We can't exactly leave a gun laying around because your ex-husband's stalking you. That's not good. So the following month, school has started. Michelle's son is in school and she needs to make it clear to the school and staff that John is not the man she thought he was. He's nothing in comparison to her son. There's no biological right there. And if they see him on campus, they're to call police immediately because he's to have no contact with her son. She's doing what she can in order to protect her family. At night, colleague after colleague, friend after friend, are holding up with her in her home so that she's never alone. Michelle would, every single night, Michelle would take a very heavy chest of drawers and push it in front of the bay doors that led out to the patio just off the, the master bedroom. We talked about this last week. John likes to enter there. So she would put that heavy chest of drawers there and then all of her, all of her curtains, all the blinds are closed, all the curtains are drawn, they're pinned closed. So there's not even a sliver because if you give John an inch into what your life looks like on the inside, he uses that against you. So Michelle built herself her own personal prison just to keep her husband or ex-husband out. Well, just like John, it wasn't many nights after beginning this routine that he crept up to the very door she blocked and tried to pound his way through. It woke Michelle and her friend who was laying in bed with her, and Michelle grabbed her gun, and she let John know she had a gun. Well, after a little bit, John leaves. It is obvious to Michelle in this moment, Dallas was no longer her home and she needed to be back in Louisiana with her parents and her family and those who could help protect her. It wasn't fair to all of her colleagues and friends being in the situation that she was putting them in. 
Well, on her way out of town, Michelle, Michelle stopped her car at the very house of the one person who, outside of her friends and family, were was there to help her situation and help her through one of the most violent times in her life. She promised, the neighbor promised Michelle that John was never going to touch her again. And somehow that stranger held up to her promise. John had yet to lay another finger on Michelle. And thanks to a complete stranger's testimony into the beating, it looked like John had some pretty serious charges being brought against him. Well, where Michelle is this well-dressed lawyer, this neighbor is, you know, she's wearing the same clothes she wore the day Michelle was attacked. And Michelle remembers it. But she has to stop and she has to say thank you. Because had she not intervened, there's a good chance Michelle would not be on her porch that day to say thank you as she's leaving town. John had told Michelle prior to knocking her out that if he was going to go to jail, it was going to be for a damn good reason. Well, he held true to his promise, but so did a stranger who had no idea who they were. Michelle had nothing to offer her but honest-to-goodness gratitude. And the woman, she was very happy to take the thank you. But she loved the fact that Michelle had rise above that beating. And it didn't define her. It only pushed her to become stronger. And moving herself and her children away from the man that terrorized her was a perfect way to show that you are stronger than the situation you are in. On September 14th of 1987, Michelle left Dallas under the cover of darkness and regained herself when she entered the city limits of her childhood town, Baton Rouge. The only things she had with her were her, her children, the clothes on their back, and the little that she could pack into a suitcase. She left everything behind. She left her job, she left her car, her house, everything. And since she had no job, no car, no house, no school, it didn't matter because the distance between her and John was great and she had surrounded herself by those that would love and protect her as she learned to regain who she was before he came into her life. When Michelle found a home, she paid some movers to go to her home in Dallas, pack her things, and move them to Baton Rouge. The thought of having someone do the work for her would mean that John wouldn't try to bully her anymore. Or so she thought. The, mov the movers were handed a photograph of John and they were told under no circumstances was he allowed on the property per a protection order she still had in place in Texas. But when John realized the movers were at the home and moving away Michelle's things, he went over man to man, chummed them up, told the movers, you know, he needed to go in and have a look around. He told them this was the home he shared with his wife and his kids. And for sentimental reasons, he wanted to go in and, and look at everything one last time. And the movers caved. So as John goes in, takes a look around sentimentally, the movers, they get busy with 
moving this super solid dresser. And most of you can remember how furniture was made back then versus furniture now. Back then, it seems like the pieces weighed a million pounds. And today, it's like you sneeze and they fly halfway across the room. So as they're busy trying to cart this heavy dresser out, John slips into the master bedroom. And it's in there that is Michelle's most prized possession. Her four-poster bed that had belonged to her grandmother. He decided he was going to carve cunt. I hate that word. I hate that word. And I hate that word. Just FYI. I, mm, I hate that word. Into this delicate piece of wood. He knew by carving that in, it would absolutely kill her. And not necessarily the word he used. It, it's more the destruction of the property. And Michelle had held her composure with John through most of the dramatics. He scared her. She's tried to stay straight faced. He hurt her. She tried not to cry. But when he carved into the wood of her grandmother's bed, she broke. In October of 1987, John Sr. wrote Judge Carolyn Wright about Michelle and her sudden departure from Dallas with her and her children. They needed someone to do a welfare check on Christy. Michelle was not allowing the poor girl's grandfather to even see her when he was in town, claiming that when he called over to the other grandparents' home, Michelle's mother was less than understanding and had been incoherent on the phone. Well, Michelle and her family, they're shocked as shit because here's John Sr. siding with his son and he either obviously did not know what his son had done to Michelle and, and caused her to need emergency surgery and placed into the hospital to recover. He either did not know of that or he just wasn't going to acknowledge that. So one day Michelle's sitting down, she's going through the mail and she sees she has something from the 256th Family District Court in Dallas. John managed to get them to give him a new custody hearing and Michelle needed to be in attendance. Since Michelle had left the state of Texas, making it difficult for John to see his daughter, new details needed to be ironed out. The custody hearing would determine visitation for John to make up for the fact that Michelle had moved outside of a day's drive from John seeing his daughter. Now, Michelle's appalled and she decides, you know what, I'm going to write the judge. This is, you know, surely they've got to know the history. And in her letter, she outlines what was an already settled upon agreement. Well, the judge says, hands tied, got to come. I don't know what to tell you. So, Michelle flies back to Dallas for this extreme tension-filled hearing, but she has a new attorney with her. Well, the judge calls her new attorney into the chambers, and Judge Carolyn Wright has the audacity to say this in front of Michelle's lawyer, that John Battaglia is one of the best-looking men she's ever seen in her life. Disgusting in the fact that she could take one look at his rap sheet and she could see he was nothing but bad news. 
yet she still found it appropriate to say something so complimentary about the man who was a constant abuser of Michelle's. Well, I had to throw that in because it makes me sick to my stomach. They end up ironing out some new details. And the judge says that John would have custody of Christy three days every month. And the extended period was to make up for tribal time between Dallas and Louisiana. First, though, John needed to take care of the legal matters in which he found himself a part of for the multiple violations before this set of visitation could begin. Fear of all of the what-ifs that could happen when John took custody of Christy every month for those three days was nothing but a stressed-filled nightmare until Christy could be back into Michelle's arms. But luckily, thanks to felony charges, it took him a minute. On July 1st of 1988, John finally stood trial for that god-awful beating that he gave Michelle nearly a year before. John had done a really good job at postponing this. It ended up being postponed, rescheduled, whatever you want to call it, 26 times. Each time Michelle had to travel to Dallas to learn that it had been postponed or rescheduled, the debt alone of travel was going to be the death of her. In the end, John's lawyer ends up calling Michelle and says, you know, could you drop the charges? And if you drop the charges, John has agreed that he will plead guilty to a lesser charge that would mean John would serve 364 days in jail. Well, Michelle's a lawyer and a very, very good one at that. So she asked to see, you know, this agreement of pleading guilty and what charges. She can read the legal mumbo jumbo. And yes, it did mention jail time, but in the best interest of the defendant, it would be adjusted to probation and John would have to attend and pay for monthly probation meetings. She could cave and John would yet again get away with what he had done. But she was in a whole other state. Could he torment her in the same manner? The next line really caught her eye. John Battaglia Jr. could not leave the state of Texas without the written consent of the courts. And this could make visitation extremely difficult. So now we're looking at, okay, but if he does take this plea agreement, he can't come here and he can't terrorize me. I mean, what's he going to do? Call me? You know, I put the phone down, walk away and do what I got to do. It looks awful appealing. Just going to throw that out there. I mean, when you're going through something like this, you don't want to continuously relive it. Well, when you are going through this with someone like John, who's a narcissist, you are going to relive it day in, day out, until they are tired of reliving it. Before John could begin his visitation, he also needed to be evaluated by a psychologist. And he would be evaluated by a very well-known psychologist. Her name is Linda M. Ingram. She's a doctor of psychology and she was to evaluate actually both sides so john and michelle both 
were given a 567 question evaluation called the Minnesota Multifacet Personality Inventory. This is called the MPPI and it is still used today. It's had quite a few updates since 1989, but the basis is still the same. The validity of the test is based on asking the same question in four different variations. We have someone like John who can pick up on patterns pretty well. He's not stupid. He is highly intelligent. I mean, if we're going to give him anything, that's what we're going to give him. He is extremely smart. So he was able to see the pattern and he changed his answers to match them accordingly. He cheated the system and he knew he was doing it. John was later deemed as an insecure person who needed assertiveness training. The danger to Christy was minimal because his outbursts were not directed to her. Well, on August 11th of 1989, Christy and John were reunited for their first visitation since all of this bullshit started. Michelle was having to fly into Dallas in order to bring Christy to John. And when it was time to come home, John would fly Christy. John and Christy would fly home to Louisiana and then John would fly back. This is all under the courts and all deemed as appropriate times to leave the state. Then 1990 rolls around. We have a whole new decade and things are going to look fresh. John was working for the FDIC when the RTC or the Resolution Trust Corporation was founded. And this basically is salvaging some of the assets lost by a financial institution going belly up or crumbling under the notion that the government would save this. And in Dallas, that office alone was overseeing $10 billion in failed banking institutions. So the FDIC wasn't as lucrative as the RTC seemingly looked. So John left his position with the FDIC and moved over to the RTC. And under this level of work, there were no quotas for John to adhere to. So instead of working on what he should be working on, trying to gain some of these assets back to the taxpayers, he instead turned an eye to the poor work habits of his fellow co-workers and would point out to those in management the poor practices of said co-workers. This was not even remotely close to his job description, but it does continue to offer you an insight into the NPD, the Narcissistic Personality Disorder that John clearly has. He has to be superior. And if all of these little peons are making all of these little stakes and I can point that out to somebody who has power, they'll give me power. That is the way his brain works. I'd never said people with NPD made a lot of sense. I'm just saying. So he's doing this and he's kind of good at it. Then October of 1990, a young 28-year-old woman 
would be out enjoying her time with friends in this pub style location. And that's when she noticed this extremely handsome man from a couple tables away watching her. All of her friends at this point were, they were marrying off. They were having kids. They were building these families. And Mary Jean Pearl had yet to make that leap. So far, no man had been worth it. But just maybe this guy staring at her from across the bar was. John was seven years her senior, but that didn't matter. He was suave, he was attentive, and he was sophisticated. And Mary Jean was impressed. He was working in a position that allowed him to get money back to the taxpayers through failed financial institutions. So when you packaged all that up, is this glamorous package. He, he does good for the people. He's a very nice person. He's extremely attentive. Like, you know, fairy tale. Yeah. By the end of the night at this pub... Mary Jean is happily scribbling her phone number down on the napkin that John had slid to her when he asked for it. She never considered that the person sitting across from her would change her life in the worst way possible. Mary Jean, let me introduce you to her. She was the only daughter of a business savvy Jean Harrison Pearl and Doris Clark. A year and a half into Jean and Doris's marriage, they had Mary Jean, and this was the couple's first and only child together. Doris had two sons from a previous marriage, and Jean had taken them both on as his own, but now he technically had this blood child that was his. Well, during her time with Jean, Doris opened up her dream shop in the antique business and was quickly a success at it. And when Mary Jean came along, her brothers were teens. And by the time she was a teen herself, she was set into this I'm the baby of the family mentality. All of them took care of Mary Jean as though she was a princess because this is exactly how Jean treated women in his life and how he raised his stepsons to treat women in their life. And Mary Jean was the center of it all. So when Mary Jean was a junior in high school, she decided she wanted to test her wings in the free world and she wanted to move to New York. Well, Jean was capable of giving his daughter what she wanted, and so he rented her an apartment in New York City for six months, a time frame he felt was long enough for her to decide if the hustle and bustle of the city was right for her or not. But it only took three months before Mary Jean declared she wouldn't cut out for New York City. And so Mary Jean came home, and she went into the family business with her mom, and continuing to make the antique shop extremely successful. Now, where John was beginning a new interest in Mary Jean, Michelle was making leaps and bounds in her professional career. She had wanted to be a law professor when she graduated from law school, but was told that, you know, in order to be a good professor, you really kind of need to have experience in the courtroom. 
which is what led her to take the position in Dallas in the first place. Well, now she has the experience that they said she needed to have, and she was eager to begin teaching. But her love life would also take a turn for the better when she met John Gietti. She never expected the level of quietness that would come from Mary Jean walking into John Battaglia's life, but she never expected the amount of love and admiration that she would have when John Gietti walked into her life. Make no mistake, the actions of John in his life affected both women who he had once been married to. After a couple of months of dating Mary Jean, she surprised everyone, including her family, who had only just been introduced to John. And Mary Jean's mother really liked him, thought he was ambitious and handsome, and you could kind of show him off. And if you'd asked Jean, he would have said yes, but he's a dad and nobody's ever good enough for daddy's little girls. Doesn't matter who they are. But she had this announcement. Mary Jean and John were going to be married, and they had set this date, but John had been raised Catholic, and he had other plans. Well, as they're trying to put together a wedding, Mary Jean's brothers are seeing little cues come out in John that, that indicate John's not who Mary Jean thinks he is. But Mary Jean was in love and everything was magical and awe-inspiring and you couldn't bust that bubble with a silver bullet. She didn't believe that John could be anything but this person that he was. But her brothers were starting to see he was not this nice guy he pretended to be. Like I said, Mary Jean wasn't having any of it. She knew the incident about Michelle with John breaking her nose, and John had twisted the details to make it look far less violent and in a way that made it seem as an isolated incident. Now, at this point, Mary Jean had never met Michelle. Michelle had never met Mary Jean. So Mary Jean believes that Michelle was this overbearing wife who gave John who never gave John a moment to himself. And after the divorce, she did everything she could to keep John from seeing his only child. And, you know, what kind of woman would do that? Mary Jean wasn't that kind of woman. There had never been a man more deserving of being loved in her eyes. And she was going to become the wife and mothers that others dreamed of becoming. Now, John, he was force-feeding Mary Jean lie after lie, and she swallowed down each and every one eager for more. Like I said, John had been raised Catholic, and he wanted nothing more than a Catholic-led wedding and a Catholic church. This meant the couple had to go through counseling with the priest who was going to marry them. Well, it wasn't long... And Mary Jean was buying this gorgeous designer gown and her parents were laying down deposit after deposit to give their daughter this wedding of her dreams and of John's too, up until the priest declared something almost detrimental. 
He said he was not going to marry John and Mary Jean. He foresaw future problems between the couple. He said that John had anger management issues that were unresolved. He also said that John had yet to reconcile with the fact that he was an abusive partner to his first wife and the fact that John refused to take responsibilities for his actions. That's not something you want to hear from a priest. Well, guess what? Mary Jean wasn't any better. Well, I mean, she wasn't bad, but she wasn't, I don't know. Mary Jean, she was, the priest said she was controlling, and she really had a hard time relinquishing power, and this meant that she did not allow John to be part of the decision-making process, which is not a good thing. Relationships are supposed to be 100% from both parties, but the moment you start excluding them and making decisions for the both of you, it's not 100%. So it's not good for a relationship, but you also didn't beat somebody prior to John or do half the crap he did. Now, Mary Jean's parents were in the process of putting together the perfect wedding gift for their daughter. It was their very own, very large, two-story red brick home on Dickinson Street in an area just north of downtown and about 15 minutes from the historic Deep Ellum I introduced you to in the trailer last week. Mary Jean and John were over the moon about this gift. It was a beautiful four-bedroom, three-bath house. It had a large formal dining room and adjoining music room that held a baby grand piano. This was the life John wanted, and it was being handed to him on the silver platter that he wanted, thanks to his fiance's very well-off family. With their family home just being handed to him, them, they could put the priest and his concerns behind them, and that's exactly what they did when they decided to move up their wedding date to April 6, 1991, only six short months after them first meeting. All the deposits that her parents had put down on wedding venues, caterers, florists, and more, they were gone thanks to the moved up wedding date. The two wed right there in the living room of their new family home. Mary Jean would be introduced to the man John was the night of her wedding. Her first neon sign that everything was not going to be like it was with her parents' marriage was right there on her wedding night. The language was vulgar and downright abusive. The man she had just agreed to stand by through good times and bad until death do they part became a complete and total stranger. After their return from their honeymoon, Mary Jean had chalked John's outburst as isolated. But she had learned that her Prince Charming was a snorer, and this was difficult in their relationship and far harsher than the outburst on the night of their wedding. She had done everything she could to block out the freight train laying next to her at night, sleeping under her pillows, putting the cushioned earplugs into her ears, had a white noise machine blaring, but nothing could drown out the obnoxious sound coming from John. 
Two months after their wedding, Mary Jean learned she was in a delicate state. She was pregnant. And since she was growing another human, sleeping became an important part of her day. So at night when John began snoring beyond comprehension, she would nudge him and beg him to roll over anything to make the snoring stop long enough for her to be able to fall asleep. But John would become angry, like most people who are being constantly shoved, and he would get up, grab his pillow, stomp off into another one of the bedrooms in their home. 9.9 times out of 10, John never came back. On January 9th of 1992, Mary Faith Battaglia was born, and she would be known to most as just Faith. John doted on his newest daughter, much like he had when Christy was born. Much like when Christy was born, John's abuse turned back to Mary Jean. But where he was physically abusive with Michelle, John was being verbally and mentally abusive to Mary Jean. When Mary Jean took longer than some to lose the extra pounds most women hold on to after pregnancy, John belittled her and called her fat. The home he was living in was in his wife's name only, which for those very few who knew, actually could not have cared less whose name was on the deed. But for John, it was like each one of them mocked him behind his back. Well, thanks to Michelle not finishing high school, John would regularly call her stupid a change from Michelle, who in his eyes was far more educated than him himself. He tried to take from her self-worth with each vulgar name he threw at her, where with Michelle, he let his hands do the talking with Mary Jean. She was much easier to tear down with just a few words. Mary Jean didn't see this in her raising. Her parents loved one another, and to a woman who comes from that kind of background, abuse like this just didn't happen. And if it did, you sure as hell didn't let it on to anyone else. You never falter. Mary Jean loved to entertain at their beautiful home. Guests would walk through their entryway and never once considered that not 10 minutes before, John was calling his wife every name under the sun, tearing down her self-esteem piece by piece. All of their friends loved John. They were not going, they were not getting the same face that Mary Jean was getting almost daily at this point. Looking at the battalions, you would think they were the perfect family. A husband with a hotshot job, taking care of his family the way a man is supposed to. A wife who was the perfect Stepford wife. Elegant parties at their home, always supporting and boasting about her husband and their beautiful daughter. It was sickening. They are just too perfect to the world outside. Christmas cards went out to family and friends and it posed just so to reveal this beautifully decorated Christmas tree, perfectly placed hand, perfectly placed arm, beautiful smiles creating the perfect scene for their family and friends to enjoy. Christy was still visiting her father monthly just as she had, in, he had arranged 
The only difference was that Michelle's life had become eerily quiet on the John Battaglia front. Christy loved her little sister and new stepmom. Life looked grand when she went to visit her father. She would return with beautiful clothing, gorgeous shoes. The Pearl family could not have been more loving and caring to their bonus daughter and granddaughter. Because Michelle at one point was worried what life would be like now that John had a new family. But now Michelle's worry turned from what her daughter would experience on these visitations to the woman who Christy boasted about when she would come home. Was Christy's stepmother living the same nightmare Michelle had just a few years earlier? John Battaglia was a master artist. His family portrayed the perfect, everyone wants that kind of life picture. A mask would fall onto his face and a personality only reserved for those looking in through the window of his life would come to life. On the surface, everything seemed perfect. He was the perfect match to their friend Mary Jean and he was the absolute best father to not only Mary Faith, but to Christy as well. If you would have pulled the entire clan of friends to the battalions, you'd learn two things. One, they were all Mary Jean's friends before John. And two, they all loved John. Not a one would take one look at him and think that the man staring back at them was capable of killing two innocent little girls. His two innocent little girls as a way to get back at the woman who left him when she was fed up with the name calling and physical abuse that would manifest later in their marriage. One of the most dangerous things about people with narcissistic personality disorder who have been violent in the past is not knowing when the next time that rage will explode. John is more than the textbook narcissist. It's almost like the mental disorder was written based solely on John David Battaglia Jr. The only thing you, you could add to the toxic cocktail that created John David Battaglia is bipolar disorder. Going into a depressive state was a downward spiral for Michelle and Mary Jean. His abuse both mentally and physically would increase as he sunk deeper 
and once the manic in him took over, he would explode with a sudden rush of energy. Afterwards, the honeymoon phase would begin. However, with Mary Jean, the honeymoon phases were short-lived. John entered into a state that we would never see the charismatic John once his finger squeezed the trigger. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we dive deeper into the larger-than-life storm that is John Battalion, Jr. So far, we've seen and heard the lightning and thunder, but soon we will know the wrath that is the murderer If you or someone you know is suffering from domestic abuse, please call 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. Remember that internet usage causes digital footprints and those can be tracked. So please use your phone and call the hotline to help get out safely. As always, I leave you with one last line. Arguing with a narcissist is like getting arrested. Everything you say can and will be used against you. Much love, the true crime librarian, 